Well, hello, friends. Uh, my name's Brad, and I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And it is good to know, as Pastor Wally indicated, that we are looking forward to being together on Sunday, July 4th in person, either indoors or outdoors. So thanks for uh, being patient and hanging in there for a few more weeks, friends. This summer is going to be different in terms of our capacity to gather and be together, and I'm so looking forward to that. But speaking of summers, um, it's our practice here at Jericho to take the summer months and walk chronologically through the Old Testament so that you get a picture of how this section of Scripture really knits itself together. And so starting back way back in 2011, we started in the book of Genesis, and then we went through all of the first books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and then we went into the books that chronicle and move us from the judges into the rule of the kings and chronicles, and then uh, we moved into the prophetic tradition, and we arrived a few years ago at one of the biggest events in the Old Testament, and that is the exile, where God's people are scattered to different parts of the world. And lots and lots and lots of books of the Old Testament are actually written during this time period where the ancient people of Judah and Israel are taken captive by powerful nations to lands like Babylon and Persia. And so these are uh, books that are written during this time need to be understood in both their historical as well as their genre context in order for us to live with wisdom out of what we're learning in them. And many of these books actually contain powerful stories about people who are not part of the majority culture and yet who learn how to faithfully operate and live for God in that setting. And so there's really a lot for us to glean in our day and time because we, as people of faith here on the West Coast in the 21st century, do not operate from a majority culture position. And so today, we're launching into a brand new teaching series on the Old Testament book of Esther entitled Truth to Power. And the story of Esther is really a story about how a young immigrant woman moves from obscurity to the position of queen of the land and who at great personal cost to her and her family speaks a very difficult truth to power and ends up saving her people. But I'm getting ahead of myself and I'm also giving away the end of the story before we even get started. So let's back up just a little bit because the story of Esther actually doesn't start with Esther. It starts with another queen, a woman by the name of Queen Vashti. And today we're going to see how Vashti takes a stand against those in power and how that actually models something powerful for us. So if you have your Bibles or on your devices, you can open them to Esther chapter 1. If you're on the Church Online platform, there's a space for you to take notes if you want. You can save those offline. Uh, the book of Esther is tucked away just before the Psalms, just to the left of the center of your Bible, and I'll be reading uh, Esther chapter 1 from the New Living Translation. So let's dive in. Esther chapter 1 verse 1 says, These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Medea, as well as all the princes and nobles of the provinces. And the celebration lasted 180 days, a tremendous display 
of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. And when it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all of the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. And the courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which are fastened with light white linen cords, purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of fafari, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. And by edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. And at the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So let's just pause here for a moment and talk about power dynamics because we have to understand that in order to understand the book of Esther. This particular king, King Xerxes, that's his Greek name, history also records him as Ahasuerus. He's also mentioned in Ezra chapter four, verse six, but Xerxes is way easier to say, so we're gonna use that for this series. He ruled from 486 BC to 465 BCE, and history records that he was an incredibly powerful ruler. He was the son of a king, another very powerful king named Darius. And he's known, Xerxes was known for massive building projects as well as a very successful war against the Greeks. And his empire encompassed most all of the known world at that time. It stretched from the Indian subcontinent to Ethiopia in Africa up to Greece. So he had a massive empire that it was divided up into 127 provinces. So he really was the most powerful person in the ancient world at that time, like by a long shot. And so Xerxes wants to show off. He wants to display just how powerful and just how rich he really is. And so the biblical record gives us details on all of the powerful men at the feast, the duration of the feast, the decor of the feast, and we're to read all of these details and understand and go, wow, this guy is powerful. He's rich. This is a man to be feared and obeyed. So let's keep reading and see what happens next because we're going to see that someone perhaps unexpected stands up to him and speaks truth to power. Esther chapter one, verse 10 continues. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. And this made the king furious, and he burned with anger. So let's just, again, pause for a moment and explore this request just a little bit. This is not a polite, well-mannered, oh, queen, would you like to join me here at my banquet kind of request. 
In fact, uh, the ancient historian Plutarch notes that it was the habit of Persian kings to have their queen beside them at the banquet. But when they wanted to drink a lot and riot, the king sent the queen away. And Vashti is also a smart woman. She knows that once men start to drink at the volume which they were drinking at and for the length of time which they were drinking, nothing good is going to happen if she walks into that room. See, the king has called her for one purpose and one purpose only, so that he could show off his most prized possession, his beautiful queen, with that crown on her head saying to all who gazed upon her, this is mine. And let's be very clear. This is not an innocent request. This is sexual objectification of the most base and degrading and demeaning kind. See, Xerxes is, is turning his queen, Vashti, into a commodity to impress others instead of honoring her personhood or even honoring her position. See, to him, it's no different than saying, ah, let's bring out a bottle of Chateau Lafitte from my wine cellar so I can impress my friends. Or, ah, let's go have a look at my collection of rare cars so I can impress my drinking buddies. It is never, never, never okay to treat a human being like an object or a commodity. And this is what was and is so insidious about slavery or racism in any and all of its forms. Because every person that you have ever or will ever encounter is an image bearer of the Almighty God, and you do not have a right to treat them as less than such. It is a mockery to their creator when you commoditize or dehumanize other human beings. And this is also what makes patriarchy, the view that somehow men are superior to and thus should rule over women, so disturbing. This is a powerful differential that is undone in Christ. Old hierarchies, old divisions, like what we're seeing play out here, are done away with. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says it this way, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, friend, the ground is leveled for us at the foot of the cross. But that wasn't so in this period of time. And so let's head back to Vashti. The power differential here is massive and cannot be understated. See, this, this isn't a marriage of equals like we are want to think about a king-queen. In the ancient world, kings married to forge stronger political alliances. So for example, you would marry the daughter of your conquered rival, for example. And we don't know much uh, about anything about Vashti's background or her status, but we do know that saying no to the most powerful man in the world was not considered an option. 
and yet she did it. She said, no, I'm not coming. And this infuriated the king. Let's keep reading the story. In verse 12, we'll pick it up again and remind ourselves, when they conveyed this king's order to the queen Vashti, she refused to come. And this made the king furious and he burned with anger. He immediately consulted with his wise advisors who knew all the Persian laws and customs for he always asked their advice and the seven nobles of Persia and Media. They met with the king regularly and they held the highest positions in the empire. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded. What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his eunuchs? Mimucan, one of them, answered the king and his nobles, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen has did and start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. So, if it please the king, we suggest you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. And when this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. Verse 21, the king and his nobles thought this made good sense, and so they followed Mimucan's counsel. He sent letters to all parts of the empire, each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. So in a bid to preserve what this group of men saw as an attack on the very social fabric of the empire, they sent out threat letters to all 127 provinces saying, wives, do what your husbands tell you to do. So again, let's just step back from this moment and ask, hmm, how powerful for real is a king who is so insecure in his personhood that he is going to spend this kind of time and effort to reprimand all of the women in his kingdom for the disobedience of one. Yeah, King Xerxes might be powerful, but it seems that his power is wielded arbitrarily with fragile vanity and egocentric or ego-driven pride, and it makes him seem kind of sad and pathetic. And in chapter 2, verse 1, we actually see that when he sobers up and after his anger dissipates, he actually kind of regrets his decision. But the question for you and for me is, well, what in the world are we to do with all of this? What are we to make of a text like Esther chapter 1? What, what should we take away from it? I mean, it's not likely that you or I will ever be in a position like Vashti. Or is it? You and I might not face the specific, well, we will not face the specific challenge that she faced, but we will face the challenge of having to take a stand for what's right when we don't always hold the keys to the levers of power. We will be faced with the choice, when we're faced with the choice to be objectified or cast aside, Vashti actually chooses deposition from her queenship over 
dishonor. She takes her stand, knowing that ultimately this will mean the end of her palace and her place of favor and privilege. And unfortunately, aside from being deposed, we don't actually know what happened to her. The biblical and the historical record goes silent. But I want to just pause for a moment and honor the incredible courage that it took for her to stand up to those in authority in the way that she did. And that is actually something that you and I will likely have the opportunity to need to do at some point in our lives. I think, for example, of people who are in a police or a military setting and you see a superior doing something inappropriate and then you're either told explicitly or implicitly not to say anything. The chain of command or the old boys club kind of mentality is exerting a kind of power on you and on that situation to cover up the truth by keeping it silent. And speaking up when the balance of power is not in your favor takes incredible courage. And we've seen that recently with some of the women within the Canadian Armed Forces who have been victims of abuse over the last number of years begin to find a voice and speak truth to power. And so here I just want to say something very specifically about abuse and power dynamics that are perpetuated by power. Friend, if you are suffering abuse emotionally or spiritually or physically or otherwise, you are not in a relationship that is healthy. And you need to stand up, you need to speak up, and you need to get out. We have many courageous women and some men here at Jericho who, when faced with the difficult challenge of a relationship where they were being disempowered and subjected to abuse, they made the very difficult but courageous choice to get help. And if that's you today, and you think that might describe your circumstance, I want you to reach out to us. We're here to stand with you and for you on this difficult but courageous journey forward. You need to hear that staying in a relationship where abuse is occurring is not okay. If that's a marriage, then the covenant has been broken. And you need to be safe. You need to be smart. And I want you to reach out to Pastor Jenna or to myself or to someone that you know and trust and get help. Switching gears, a word to our students and to kids. It takes courage when you're in a friendship group and someone's leading the group down a pathway that's inappropriate and wrong to take a stand and say, I'm not going to go to that event with you or I don't feel comfortable with us watching this kind of a show. Because the social pressure when you do what is right can be very high and it, it can cost you something when you break ranks for reasons of doing what is right. Sri Lankan author and advocate Jasmine Jasmine Obeyesekere Fernando says that, quote, we are Vashti when we break ranks from our tightly knit groups, family, friends, church, community, and we refuse to speak and act as they do when we feel it isn't right because that causes our group to feel uncomfortable and angry or even feel that they have lost face. We brace ourselves for the consequences. 
Perhaps a friend will stop hanging out with us. Perhaps we'll have to live with the discomfort of constant tension with a loved family member. Discarded, disregarded, maybe even publicly humiliated like Vashti was. End quote. See, there are times when taking a stand for what is right is costly. And so before we rush to applaud Esther for her wisdom and amazing, courageous work to save her people, we just need to pause and acknowledge that Esther got to the place that she did because Vashti was actually brave enough to choose to pay a price for attempting to smash the patriarchy. Vashti took a stand against the power dynamics at play. She stood up for herself and for what was right and for what was just, but she paid a high cost for that. And you might as well. And friends, this is true of any group when an imbalanced power dynamic is in play. Think about history. Historically, our forebears as Mennonites were oppressed and even killed for their convictions by state actors and even other churches because they were convinced of the need for personal repentance and the expression of water baptism. And there are sisters and brothers all around the world, even today, even right now, in places like Myanmar and Syria and Sudan and India, who are being persecuted because of their Christian convictions that are not in keeping with the majority culture viewpoint in their society. Let's remember the persecuted church. There are places where historic Orthodox Christian convictions will and do put you and I at odds with the majority opinion in our culture here today. And we have to name that and acknowledge that this means that there is a cost to taking a stand for your convictions. Like we talked about last weekend, following Jesus is not always comfortable and safe. Sometimes it puts us into conflict with the values and the visions of this world. And yet even there, in those places of tension, the invitation of God is still extended to you and me. Will you follow me despite there being a cost? Jesus invites you, will you walk with me and trust my care for you? Friends, God is gentle and non-coercive in that invitation. God will not demand something of you unjustly like Xerxes did of Vashti. And yet when it becomes clear that there will be a cost to following Jesus, be it financial or relational or vocational, one of the questions we have to wrestle with is will you and I still be willing to say yes to that? And it may not actually be a question that's in front of you right now. Or you may not face it this week, but my hope and my prayer is that when you come to that place, when you need to take a stand and follow God, you will have the courage and the wisdom and the humility to say like that old gospel song, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Maybe, friend, God is inviting you to something specific today. 
Maybe as we've been talking about this, God's bringing to mind something and inviting you to take a stand for something that you've just let slide before because you were afraid of the cost. Maybe God is bringing to mind a step of obedience and faith that you've been putting off and we would love to stand with you in that journey and help you take that step. And so if you're watching on our church online platform, just click on the request prayer button right now and that's gonna put you into a private and confidential chat with one of our staff. If you're watching online uh, on YouTube or on TELUS TV, email us at prayer at jerichoridge.com and we would love to be in touch with you and walk with you on your journey.